Hello, this is the Climate Voices Podcast and I'm your host, Amesa Mokaya. So this is the platform where we unpacking the climate change discourse one conversation at a time by bringing together different practitioners who've been working in addressing the climate crisis, ranging from policymakers to scientists and academics and to community practitioners to have a conversation around it uh, because uh, we want everyone to get to understand what is happening and be willing to be part of the change. Today I'm joined on the show by two interesting guests who are very fundamental in this fight against climate change. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and then we can pick it up from there. Nice to have you on the show. Nice to have you as well hosting us and being in Region 1 of the EPF, my friend David Cash. So I'm Daniel Blackman. Uh, I am in Region 4, which is the southeastern United States that includes South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And we also have six uh, federally recognized tribes. And uh, it's such an honor. And obviously the South uh, brings a very unique perspective to the administration. It's a part of the country where there's a lot of uh, historic, uh, you know, from a civil rights and uh, human rights standpoint, there are a lot of history there, but there's also a huge opportunity for historically black colleges, for minority serving institutions, and for our agricultural community. So we're very unique in our geography as well as as our demographic and I was really happy to share some of the things that we're doing um, on this show and I'll turn it over to Dr. Cash. Uh, thank you so much Regional Administrator Blackman. It's been fantastic to uh, have the last couple of days to be with you and thank you so much for inviting us on this podcast. Really excited to talk about these issues. Uh, I'm in Region 1, which are the six New England states and the ten federally recognized tribes that are in New England. And like all over uh, the world, um, we are trying to both decrease the chance that climate change is going to happen and protect those communities who are hit first and worst. And those are generally low-income and disadvantaged communities, and we see that all over the world. And, um, and we see that in, uh, in our two regions, both in New England and the Southeast. And my name is David Cash. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, amazing to learn what you're doing. So um, we, what we have seen in the past is uh, different people addressing the climate crisis in different ways. So I come from Kenya and what we have seen in the past is everyone, when they look at the U.S., they see um, someone who has been responsible for the climate crisis mm -hmm. that most of the countries are facing in the global south. Yeah. You know, bringing a whole range of, uh, you know, social justice versus climate justice issues. Yeah. And these are some of the conversations we've been having. But recently we have seen the U.S., uh, making major, you know, moves with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. you know, giving um, the climate crisis the attention that it so needs and which I think is going to make the U.S. take the position as a global lead in the fight against climate change. So I'm interested in knowing which are some of the ways in, in which the EPA is involved uh, in implementing, you know, uh, for example, the IRA or addressing the climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah. You already answered your own question. I mean, IRA has been significant. The bipartisan infrastructure law, hone in um, nationally and internationally bipartisan. I think the Biden Harris administration has done a phenomenal role in bringing everyone to the table to help America's infrastructure and to help us to lead not only domestically but foreignly because we want um, individuals to see the leadership that comes out of our agencies. And that starts with EPA. 
um, water infrastructure, uh, replace, replacing lead pipes, addressing the climate crisis. These are all areas that the administration has been focused on. And some of the things we're doing in the agency as a whole and, and in Region 4 is bringing the community to the table, using platforms to communicate, to educate, to inform people. But more than anything else, when you look at the bipartisan infrastructure law for starters, there's something included called Justice 40. And that is a directive that puts 40% of the federal investments from the bipartisan infrastructure law into underserved communities. And I think that when, when you talk about leading at any capacity, uh, it starts with making sure that marginalized communities and underserved communities have had the opportunity to be at the table. And that's one thing that I think is of the utmost importance and critical for the time that we're in. So really excited about that. And then lastly for IRA, just making sure that we've communicated and coordinated with individuals that um, need better support for air. You know, when you think of leading on the climate crisis and on environmental justice, I think it's important for you to recognize the fact that air and water has to be parallel to solving these issues. Yeah, so just to build on what uh, Regional Administrator Blackman just said, you know, the first day of the Biden-Harris administration, President Biden uh, released an executive order that required all of the federal agencies to figure out how to address climate change with the tools that they already have. And for EPA, that meant evaluating all of our regulations, and there's been a raft of regulations that have come out of our Office of Air and Radiation that focus on tailpipe emissions, that focus on uh, power plants and manufacturing facilities uh, with the goal of reducing climate forcing emissions. Uh, and then further, with this huge influx of funding from the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to be working, as the regional administrator said, with communities to advance the technologies that will help them move into the clean energy future and provide the kind of clean energy jobs that have uh, not existed before in these communities. And so use the investments that we're making not only to address the climate crisis, but to do it in a way that brings justice to these communities both in terms of the climate impacts and in terms of potential jobs. Thank you so much. So what I read from there is the aspect of addressing historical injustices and you know, environmental justice issues that have been raised in the past around marginalized communities. For instance, uh, here in Boston, we see communities which are impacted differently. For example, there are a couple of communities uh, like uh, Eastern Boston, where the Boston Logan Airport is hosted, and a couple of industrial areas. And most of the communities you find around those areas are, you know, communities of color or communities of migrants. And those are some of the issues that I've, I've been so passionate about, you know, in trying to see how environmental justice, uh, you know, is addressed. Because we say uh, there's no social justice without environmental justice. So, I mean, you have touched about it, but specifically, are there like programs that the EPA has, uh, whether in Region 1 or Region 4, uh, in addressing environmental justice issues? Yeah, let me let me address, since you uh, mentioned Logan Airport, I'll just uh, mention East Boston and, and Chelsea, because historically EPA has uh, given out permits, you know, water permits related to particular pollutants or air permits. And the community in East Boston and Chelsea came to us and said, wait a minute, we have so many different pollutants that we're dealing with. We're dealing with water pollution, we're dealing with air pollution, we have so much truck traffic coming to us, we have airplanes flying over our heads. We need to think about permitting in a more holistic way. And while we're not there yet, we have a long way to go. We've started the analysis and the work with this community at the table 
to figure out how we could do our permitting that will end up with greater environmental justice for this community. So that's one example, but there are tons of others uh, particularly related to how we're investing funds from the bipartisan infrastructure law and inflation reduction. Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, direct impact um, on these communities, it, it takes a lot of listening. It takes a lot of, of you know, I hate to use the word posture. You know, we, we have to rethink how we're engaging these areas. Uh, a part of me being here in Boston in Region 1 was meeting with the community in Roxbury and having conversations about the perspective that uh, these environmental justice communities have versus us. You know, if we uh, are taking an approach from, uh, and I think what's important before I can go forward, for those that are listening, uh, we're two regional administrators that see an opportunity in collaboration. We can easily say, you know, Region 1 um, has its way of doing things, Region 4 has its way of doing things. But what we've done, which I think is, is unique and very special as it relates to EPA, is we're saying, hey, I want to be here. I want to learn from you because there's similarities in our regions, but there's also opportunities for us to engage the community. And here's what's special about that. We had uh, individuals from Mississippi, from Alabama, that joined our meeting here in Roxbury from a, from a community standpoint. And you know what? Those issues they were dealing with from Region 4 were some of the same issues they're dealing with right here in Region 1. It's the same way with the other eight regions. There are 10 EPA regions, and every community, right, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for environmental justice, but communities are struggling with the same things. Responsiveness, access to resources, uh, making sure that their partnerships statewide, federal, locally are, uh, are mutually beneficial. And I think it's important for us to take the lead on that. So one thing I would say on behalf of both of us as regional administrators is we're facilitators, right? We're not here to point fingers. We're not here to look at past, to look at past administrations. We're here to determine what is in the best interest for this moment with this administration, with these resources, to make sure that folks that have been left out of that conversation whether they're through marginalized communities, underserved neighborhoods, or areas that quite frankly have just been left out of the conversation because of a lack of infrastructure to be able to be at the table, we want to change that narrative. We want to change it with having access to resources, technical support, but more than anything else, we want their voices to be heard because what we can't do um, during this time with these resources, we can find other federal partners that can come to the table. I think one thing we're doing really great here in Region 1 is identifying who those federal partners are, including elected officials, and making sure that the community has access to our respective agency that can help them to navigate those conversations. We don't want people to be intimidated by government. We want to help to increase the trust between government and community, and we want to make sure that there's a naviga navigatable process where they uh, can know what resources are available, where to find them, and how to apply. And yeah. at the end of the day, sorry. No, go ahead. On the, on the end of the day, after we've had these intense conversations with communities, after we figured out how, how to uh, make resources available, available to them, what we're shooting for is a future in which the communities that we visited this past week in Roxbury and other parts of Boston have access to new clean energy technologies, who can get access to solar power, who can get access to cheap offshore wind to, uh, to power their uh, appliances, to power, they have electric vehicles, electric vehicles, get access to public transit in a way that can get them reliable uh, service throughout the Boston metro area. 
that uh, means that uh, clean electric school buses are driving the streets of Boston so their kids are not commuting in particulate matter from diesel buses. That's the future that we're shooting for. And, um, and that's what we're here to assist these communities in identifying the federal funds that can get them in the future. And then really quickly, one last thing, because I know we've talked about this a lot between Dr. Cash and I, a clean energy future and having access to electric vehicles and charging stations does not take out of consideration public transportation. You talk about environmental justice communities, especially here um, in Region 1, and you look at the metro Atlanta region and other areas around the South, it's critical infrastructure that has to be in place so that as we transition into a clean energy future, we don't leave those very communities behind that have a desire to be involved and engage in resources and opportunities to the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure. Thank you so much. That's uh, yeah, a lot of information, a lot of good stuff that you're doing. As you said, listening makes a big difference. And I picked something from the conversation that you had before at UMass Boston. You said um, sometimes, you know, science can be intimidating to communities. So part of what we are also doing with this podcast is trying to break down that complicated scientific jargon so that people can actually get to understand what is happening. It's not that people are not doing anything they're actually doing it's just that we put it in you know in complicated uh, terms and leave people out of the question but like you say daniel consultation with people and working with people and working with society is uh, a great part of you know trying to bring the change that we want to see uh, in addressing the climate crisis yes as you were mentioning about you know partnering uh, with various agencies I, I was just wondering do you have like are there like community groups specifically you're working with in addressing yeah. uh, climate? Yeah, there are a lot of them. I think it's, you know, one of the biggest missteps we, we often make as, as a federal government, not just as EPA, is being non-traditional, thinking outside the box as to who we are accessing, right? We can't rely on lists and names of community organizations from 10 years ago. They may still exist, but we've got to widen the tent, right? We, we've got to make sure that we're listening because, you know, yesterday's freshman in college is today's entry-level worker. So we can't just rely on, you know, information with the current um, pool of students that exist because, you know, one area that is a huge concern of mine, uh, having a son getting ready to go to college, mm -hmm. is the amount of debt that college students graduate with. So a lot of times there's a lot of energy between freshmen and sophomores that, you know, are, are want to be active, want to be in the climate conversation in EJ, and then by the junior and senior year, adulthood really starts to sit in and they start thinking, I gotta pay these, these bills off, I gotta pay this debt. So when I think of the way we communicate, I think one, are we being consistent and bringing people along the way? Number two, I think about literacy, right? Because we, we can't assume that when we talk science and we talk, you know, EPA jargon, um, that folks can just lock in step understanding. So it's not that we're dumbing down um, information, we're trying to find ways to make it more clear and less intimidating. And I think that's the, that's the most critical part. If you go into most communities, you know, they, they want to know why the water bill is high. They want to know why there's a poor water advisor. They want to know why, you know, when their kids go outside and they have asthma, it's not getting better and they're missing more school days. Our, our job is to take the complex side of our work, to simplify it to the best of our ability, and to make sure that folks have an opportunity to, to do two things. One, ask us questions about the information, and two, independently access it when they don't have a David Cash or a Daniel Blackman. They can go online to epa.gov, they can look at information, we're detailed with it, and we take a lot of time, I learned it from 
David and his staff uh, in translating our data and our information and using very specific software that can take that language that can be complicated and intimidating and that can then be translated into levels that are more palatable for communities, regardless of their level of education, regardless of their interest in science. Our goal is to make this information accessible and to make people feel that they're a part of that conversation, not being spoken over. So, Thank you so much for emphasizing on that. Yeah, trying to look into the future, you have to look at the past. And I know, Daniel, for instance, you have a strong background in civil rights and Dr. Kash. Uh, you have a background in academia, so I'm, I'm just trying to refer. And this, these are the kind of conversation we are, we are actually like emphasizing on. You know, having different people working together, yeah. using your past, for example, in civil rights and, and and the past in academia, and how now you're working together in, in, the, in the same field in addressing the same issues. So, how is your past influencing I mean, not, your not, not influence? Yeah, so I want him to open up an answers, but it's also. The white guy, I'm a black guy, I'm in the southeast and the north. I mean, we don't take for granted what your question, but we also realize we come from backgrounds where our lived experience in the United States and in our regions have been different. So uh, he has a very unique perspective, and, and I think I have to share after him. Well, I think, you know, one of the amazing things about working at EPA, if you just think about the other regional administrators, there are 10 of them, oh my gosh, the path that we've all taken to mm-hmm. get to our positions, the different backgrounds that we've had, the different communities we grew up in, the different struggles and challenges we've had, all make us much better as a team to try to figure out how to solve these problems. Right. And then when you think about the staffs that we have, uh, and I know that you feel the same way, I feel incredible gratitude for the staff that work here, that many who have worked here for decades, a lot who have worked here just for a year or two or three, but the breadth of experience, expertise, um, is incredible, and um, that's something to be valued. And given that we're dealing with issues of environmental justice and of race, it is critically important to to put those issues on the table. So, you know, I, as, as, as a regional administrator, Blackman mentioned, I have a very different kind of history, what my background is, what my ethnicity is, um, but those are assets. But I can't be blinded by those. That's right. And that's the danger. Right? I have to be very open-minded and humble about what I do bring and what I don't bring to the table. So, you know, I, I can be in meetings where I'm listening in communities, and I have to be really grounded in the fact that I do not have the lived experience of the people who are in that room. And I've got to respect that and understand that and, um, you know, approach it in that kind of way. And the hardest part about our positions, you know, and, I'm, and this is my opinion and perspective, is that... We have to be able to go into rooms, you know, like, you know, me as, you know, a black male in the South, I can't assume that every room is going to be the same. We can't go into rooms based on a person's gender or religious background or cultural background or ethnicity. We can't just think that those are barriers and we can't have conversations in those rooms. And that's what makes me being here in Region 1 so special because we've literally you know, gotten better off each other's strengths and learned from each other's weaknesses. You know, being in a room, I mean, I, I wish you saw this guy, you know, yesterday being in a room with, you know, some some environmental community leaders and, and folks that haven't had the best interaction with the government, right? They haven't always been responsive. And to see him sit there and listen and say, hey, here's what we're going to do different. That's the same guy that was in front of the crowd at UMass, the same guy that was in the, the, the meetings we had all day. So what I, what I love about our work is we don't have to, 
you know, switch our character or our identity or our leadership based on the room we're in. We're, we, our goal is to be consistent, to, to use our experiences, to, you know, to come here. And I hope we've shared and left some things with Dr. Cass that he can use. I know when I go back um, to Region 4, uh, we have a lot of meetings come up, for example, with agriculture, right? And we have a lot of things we want to do with institutions. And what we've been able to do here with UMass and with Dr. Cash's, uh, uh, I was going to say store, but uh, background with academics, um, it, it makes it easier because I have a civil human rights background and a, a legislative background on advising with policy. Mm. This gentleman has worked with academia, he's worked with policy, he's worked with government. So I think we're, we're really building something special because we've spent some time listening, we've learned from each other, and we're gonna to continue to learn each and every day. Uh, absolutely, I mean, those same rooms you're talking about, to watch him with the respect that people receive from the people we were meeting with and that he showed to them, his listening, his ability to reflect back on concerns, uh, I learned a ton these last two days, and just in the last year that we worked together. Yeah, I mean, one person, I some time back I had a wise saying: "We never stop learning because life never stops teaching." Very so, true. Very as, true. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the opportunity of having you here sharing this. As I, I could wish to have you. You know, all day discussing this, <laughs> but I know you're a busy yeah. man, and uh, you don't have all the time. So as we come to the end of this, there are a couple of young people out there who are feeling desperate. You know, feel despair. Uh, one of the episodes I did uh, in the past was about you know I talked to like six young people who are addressing the top- topic of climate anxiety. You know, they feel despair, and we are being told all these stories that you know if you don't do this, the future is doomed. But for any young person there who is you know, listening to this, what would you like to tell them? You know, as a kind of you know, word of encouragement that, you know, as the, as the EPA regional administrators, you're here for them, you've worked with the young people in academia too. I mean, what would you like to tell these young people? Well, for example, looking into, you know, addressing uh, issues of environmental and climate justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, keep learning. So education, however you're getting it, is critically important to understand and get involved. And there's so many different ways to getting involved. And it can be formal, it can be a job, it can be getting educated so you get a job, it could be getting engaged with your community and being active in that way and pushing for change and pushing local government and state government for change and federal government for change. Uh, it could be in the private sector. There is so much investment going on in the clean energy space right now that will use all kinds of different skills and abilities. Um, and it's just, there's opportunity after opportunity right now to get engaged. We're at this turning point, partly because of uh, countries all around the world stepping up, partly because of the concern that people have and how quickly climate is changing, but partly because the technology is changing so rapidly. And so there are opportunities across the board for people to get involved, whether it's local or in the private sector or in education. Um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I think it's important to use an analogy that, that I think would, would speak to this generation. You know, darkness, it simply means like the absence of light, right? And I think that this generation needs to know that they are light. You know, there's two kinds of darkness that a lot of people can identify. It's, it's, I, I spoke one time and talked about the, the darkness of the womb and the darkness of the tomb, right? Like there's a darkness that we see in burial, 
and there's a darkness that we see in life. And I think that we're going through a very complex time in our world, not just in the United States, not just in Africa, not just in the Caribbean. We're going through some very difficult times at the end of you know these challenges, um, at the end of adversity, there's an opportunity. And so as storms get more violent, your voices should get louder, right? As we see impacts on flooding, right? You all should flood the halls of Congress. As you see more things happening each and every day, my encouragement would be to find your voice in it, right? So when you think of these young people that are having what you call climate anxiety, I love that term, not because I, I celebrate, but because it's such a meaningful representation of our world right now. And I think the only way for us to truly get beyond that quote unquote climate anxiety is to push back, to fight back, to be louder, to be more intentional. Uh, I would encourage folks that hear this podcast run for office. Right, I would encourage you to learn what a regional administrator does and, and take our jobs on that. Mm-hmm. Right, I encourage you to be a part of hiring, working in Region One, working in Region Four, working for the EPA, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Department of Energy, finding your voice, your space, your time, your energy in some form that will help you transform the very zip code of society that you come from. And I think it would be most encouraging. Um, as we leave this space, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience, but I think the most important leave behind is that both David and I are fathers. We, we want our children to inherit a better world than we have. And many of your listeners will grow with our children and our grandchildren, and many of them will potentially leave uh, as a boss or as an activist or as a policy advisor. And... I think knowing that uh, what Dr. King says is that we're, we're all mutually uh, tied together in a single garment of destiny, right? So this 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 world house, uh, all of our decisions, all of our actions have an impact on people that we've never met, that we've never seen, we've never spoken to. We just left the Embrace statue here in Boston. And if we did more of embracing each other's thoughts and ideas, this would be a much better and more resilient world. And we thank you so much for the time that you have. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, and thank you so much for the for the amazing uh, insights that you've given. I appreciate it, and thank you for the powerful words to the young people and for whoever is listening. Just to mention that our, our podcast started six months ago, but mm-hmm. now it was I was mentioning to him before it's as audience in over thirty five countries. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of young people out there listening to this, and I'm sure they're motivated by this. Thank, thank you. you, thank yeah. you for the service that you've given. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. So it's Climate Voices podcast, and I'm your host, Thomas.